thanks very much, Rob. Really good to see everyone today. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Simon, and I'm a teacher, and having just had a week off, that's going to make me very, very unpopular. <laughs> Um, one of the things that seems to have dominated my life for the last kind of couple of months of being in school is just looking at countless UCAS personal statements. So when our students, I work mostly with kind of 16, 17, 18 year olds, when our students um, are applying to university, they have to write 4,000 characters about why this is the course for them and why they will be great. And uniformly, they are awful, they are dreadful. <laughs> Um, I, I teach physics, and when you get to the hundredth statement that starts off, planes are amazing. I've got no idea how they can fly, and you have to take someone aside and say, probably don't admit that right at the very start. You're meant to be showing that you're going to be a good engineer. Kind of, you, you just start to run out of patience with that. Um, particularly difficult this year has been the fact that I've had to look at some computing ones, which I mean, it's not a subject I'm brilliant at, and they, we got these students who are trying to explain um, these kind of puzzles, paradoxes, which are maybe centuries old. And they've got to explain and distill down the wisdom of many generations of the world's greatest thinkers into a few lines while they're still kind of doing their A-levels. And I really feel for them because it's very, very hard to do. Um, an unintended application is that's kind of how I feel about today's passage and me talking about it. I feel like one of those amateurs who's trying to uh, summarise what people have been saying for thousands of years about God's word with this. But actually, more than that, I feel that what I'm tackling today with Hebrews 3 and a lot of chapter 4, a lot of it seems to many people to be a paradox. It seems to be something, it can't, it can't be true, all be true, because it seems to oppose. There's kind of these two different viewpoints and they don't seem to fit together. Unlike the very, very best personal statements, the few that I see where I think, you've absolutely nailed this, actually, there is an answer. I might not articulate it well today. With God's help, maybe I will. Regardless of how good this is, what I want to start by saying is there is a coherent answer. We might not understand all of it in this life. Full comprehension of God's plan is going to have to wait until we're in heaven. But there is one answer. There is something that we can hope to understand here as we look at the fact that essentially we both have to be able to rest in God but we have to be able to strive and do work for him and we've got to bring those two things together today. Just a reminder of the context of this letter probably written originally to Greek-speaking um, synagogue members, some of them Jewish, some of them probably God-fearing Gentiles who have converted to the faith, but all of whom have a good grounding in the Old Testament. And it's coming at a time of massive persecution against the church where there is a temptation to just go back to being in the synagogue Worshipping kind of the same God, but without that persecution. There is that temptation there. And if we have a look at the first bit of text we're going to see today, we actually start off with something which you could treat as a digression, not the main point of this text. And that would be wrong, because if there's one thing I want to get out of the application today, it's what one of the verses read out a few minutes ago said. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. That's going to be the biggest point for today, so it'd feel wrong not to spend some time looking at the first six verses, which are about Moses and about Jesus. 
Just notice how this starts, though. This letter is addressed to the holy brothers and sisters, people who have been set apart by God. They are his people. The word in the Greek can mean partners. They are God's partners doing his work on earth for him. They've been called towards heaven. They're on a pilgrimage, going through their lives, following Jesus, and eventually, as we see in a few chapters' time, going towards the whole heavenly, most holy place. They have, the word here is acknowledged. It, in some translations, it says, we have confessed him as our apostle and high priest. They have made a public confession. It may well be when they were being baptized, but they have publicly stood up and said they are following Christ. He is writing to the church. I want to make that very, very clear. And today, this book speaks to us. It speaks to River Church. It speaks to people in the room today. They're told to consider Jesus, to fix their thoughts and their eyes on Jesus. It's the same word as when Jesus is doing his teaching on earth and says, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the plank in your own eye before you try to sort out the speck of dirt in someone else's. Think about this deeply. Think deeply about Jesus because that is what's going to get you through this persecution. Think about Jesus. Dwell upon him. And specifically... It describes here that um, Jesus has been sent as our apostle. That, just, that literally just means the one that has been sent. So God has sent him to earth to do a purpose. God the Father has sent him to earth to do something. And Jesus is faithful to that calling. He's faithful to that mission, even through the most trying of circumstances. Consider what went on in Jesus' life. The betrayal, the death on the cross taking the weight of sin. Consider Jesus in his pain, in his suffering. Because again, that's what's going to get you through the persecution. That's what's going to get you through the fact that life is hard if you are living as a Christian. If we can just flick on to the next slide, these collection of verses go on to describe Moses. So for the, the Jews at the time, Moses was considered basically the most perfect human the best human that had ever lived. He was pretty much venerated. And there's a temptation to go back to Moses, to the law of Moses, instead of Jesus. So the author of the letter to the Hebrews takes time to say, yes, Moses is great in in all of these ways. You're right, he is someone whose example we should study. Um, Can you just give me a wave if you were here when we were doing the series on Jesus in the Old Testament and if you were here for when we had the preaches on Moses and how he foreshadows Christ? A few people. Like, Like I said, it's worth just dwelling on Christ again. So even if you've done that, let's think again about actually those links and how Moses sets up this example, but Christ is far, far better. People in the first century, some of the Jews in the first century, literally described Moses as being higher than the angels. We've seen in the last couple of chapters that language being used. We're told in Numbers that when his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam um, start moaning about him and saying, how come you're the one that God wants to speak, uh, kind of speak to and spend time with? How come you're the one who gets to order the people around? God intervenes 
and says fairly bluntly to them, who are you to question that Moses is my guy? When I speak to him, I speak to him clearly, mouth to mouth, face to face. Other people I speak in riddles, he gets the full picture. Don't speak up against Moses. Moses is the one who actually sees God passing by. He has to hide in the cleft of the rock so he's not destroyed by the experience, but he gets to see God. His face glows because of being in the glory of God. The ten plagues, God works these amazing miracles, these signs and wonders through Moses and through Aaron. One of those miracles at the end has to do with Passover. Moses gets to actually pass on God's message to do with Passover. The fact that actually God is going to keep these people safe from the angel who brings death to all the houses in Egypt. And Moses gets to describe how that happens. An innocent is slain. A lamb is slain and their blood is applied to the doorposts and above the top of the door. And then after that, after that forgiveness and mercy is kind of poured out, Moses gets to lead them out of slavery as a redeemed people and takes them through a river and they get to watch the Egyptians being buried. Moses gets to take them out of the out of one country, and turn them into a people, a people for God. Um, in, in the text, it talks about Moses is faithful in all of God's house. That simply means household or God's people. Moses was the faithful one. Out of all of God's people, the Israelites at the time, Moses is the one who kept faithful to God. And it describes him as being faithful in God's people. He's part of the household of God. He's one of the people that God has called. And he's described as a faithful servant. He is faithful, the title of this series. And he gets, as the text concludes, he gets to bear witness to the future word. These people in the church, probably in Rome, that the letter's originally addressed to, they've grown up venerating Moses, thinking he's amazing. They have switched their allegiance to Christ. And the author reminds them that Christ is so much better. All those people who are feeling that pain at the moment that's already been spoken about today. And if you're not at the moment, trust me, you're going to at some point because it does perfect our faith, because God does have a purpose behind it. Dwell on Christ and how much better he is. Because he's been described as higher than the angels. He hears the word of God perfectly, not just clearly, but perfectly, because he is the word of God. We're told those who have seen the Son, those who see Jesus on earth, they have seen God the Father face to face. Not hidden, kind of in, in a rock, not really seeing the whole person. He shows what God is like because he is God. The, only time, the, the other time in the Bible we see as many miracles as in kind of the escape from Egypt is in those, in, in those years of ministry of Jesus' life. All the signs and wonders that accredit him and show that he's God's son, that he is the Messiah, those are there. They are greater than the miracles of Moses. Whereas Moses got a message about a Passover lamb, Jesus was the Passover lamb. He shed his own blood willingly and died for us to actually take away our sins and we're seeing future chapters he did that once passover got repeated every year jesus died once to take away the sins of the world and he brought forgiveness 
He rose from death, having conquered it. And we get baptized, immersed in water, similar to the water of the Red Sea, to show that we've been through death and resurrection with Jesus. He has literally redeemed a people. Moses was one of those people. Jesus redeemed the entire people of God. He brought them back from slavery. He brought us back out of slavery and has set us free. And Jesus isn't just a servant. He's the faithful son of God. He sits over the household. He rules the household, the people of God, as a son. And he is that future word that Moses got to talk about. The author wants to start by really making clear that Jesus is so much higher, not only than the angels, but so much higher than Moses. Jesus is the one we need to fix our eyes on. Now, Moses has been used as an example in Scripture. People are told, especially when we hit um, the later chapters of this book and we get to the heroes of faith, we get these concrete examples of people, flawed people, whose example we can notice and we can learn from. But they are flawed. All of them apart from Jesus, he is the only flawless example. He is the one that we really need to imitate. We're called to imitate Christ. We might imitate parts of other people's lives, but Christ is the only one whose life is perfect. We'll see later Joshua is brought into this as well. Joshua doesn't deliver true rest. Jesus does. If we then move on to the next slide, we get to the bit where this becomes tricky. We've got to really, really understand this. There's a few bits highlighted in red. What the author of Hebrews keeps on doing is he kind of explains a bit about God, about the Christian life, and then he switches to exhorting, to just telling these people, live your lives to Christ, to basically shouting and banging out a drum, saying, this is what you need to do. And he does it repeatedly in this chapter and a half. I'm not going to read out every page that's on the screen. But the first verse, the one that comes up here, and we are his house, we are the people of God, we are part of his people, these redeemed people, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. In other translations, that put across instead, if, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and are boasting in that hope. Okay? First of all, just to say, what this is saying is we need to persevere. Again, that word was spoken earlier. We need to hold on fast, to just grip tightly. The word confidence is about having courage, and boasting means that we're being courageous enough to actually speak out publicly still. We need, in those difficult times, to accept God's help, to accept the help of God's people, but to stand firm and proclaim how great God is still through that. Where this text is going, what, 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 what the author is trying to say, though, is that drift is happening. Tiredness, disappointment maybe, they're setting in. Reality is hitting home. People realizing that being a Christian, it's not easy. It's not the easy option. It doesn't take away the pain of this life. It brings persecution and added problems. You set yourself up in the devil's sights. And people aren't sure whether to keep on going, whether to persevere. This 
book is actually originally a sermon. And it's a sermon that clearly comes from someone with a massive pastoral heart for his people. His theology is great as well, but that's not the principal thing we see in this book. This book of Hebrews does not try to answer the question, I mean, all these conditional ifs, you're part of the people of God if you do this, This book is not trying to answer a question about whether you are saved forever at the moment of conversion or anything like that. The book just doesn't go there. It doesn't get into that question at all. Hebrews is someone saying, guys, just keep on going. Keep on going. Let's do it together. Let's help each other. Let's keep on going. It's someone exhorting the congregation to fix their eyes on Jesus and keep on going because actually that's the most important thing. Having a theological debate is a distraction from the fact that we need to look at Jesus and then keep on going. And if I was going to say one thing today, I think it would be that bit. Unfortunately, I've got a few minutes left. So, just to to point out that in um, about four months' time, when we get to the end of this book, almost the final words, couple verses um, before the end, Hebrews ends with him saying, this has been my letter of exhortation. The author is saying that directly. This message repeats. We're going to see exactly the same thing when we jump to chapter 4 in a minute. When we look at the second half of chapter 3, in a minute we're going to see this same pattern. It just keeps on coming. And this does not contradict other bits of the New Testament. Some people have set up James and Hebrew, which talk about the importance of perseverance. They've set them up to try to say they're different to what Jesus said or what Paul said, and that is simply not true. Okay, the author of this book didn't make that the main thing he was writing about, but that is an issue that some people have. So just to say quickly, it doesn't. Um, Paul, in Romans 8, says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. In Colossians, he says um, that Father God will present you holy in his sight if you continue in your faith. It's absolutely in his writing. Um, In the letter 1 John, we see that one of the other early apostles, absolutely in agreement, how do we know that we have come to know him? If we obey his commands. There is that if in place. We'll look at the certainty more later on because that certainty is there. There is this wonderful balance. If we can move on to the next slide... We've just been told that we can't be considered part of God's house or his people if we don't hold fast. Therefore, we need to heed the words of Psalm 95 that then get quoted. Okay? As the Holy Spirit says right at the start of this, what that means is that this psalm speaks for today. It speaks to us. It speaks to you personally. Today, we read the word today. And it means today for us. When this was written 2,000 years ago nearly, then today meant that day. And originally it meant today when David was writing Psalm 95. And it was referring to circumstances that happened hundreds of years before that even. God's word endures forever and it's always, always relevant. This is relevant to us. It was relevant to the Hebrews. It's relevant to us. Just notice in passing how much of the Old Testament there's been already. The author just assumes 
that people know their Bibles, they know their scripture. And what a challenge that should be to us today. Do we really value God's word? If we're meant to be fixing our eyes on God and on Christ, are we valuing the word that tells us all about it? But let's look at this passage and let's think about what the original text behind this is. This is referring to what's talked about in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20. Okay, I'm just giving a bit of a kind of background to this. What we see is that in Exodus 14, the Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. They've escaped from Egypt literally days before what happens. And the first thing they say is, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've had to take us out here to die in the wilderness? They're not very happy from the start. They are grumbling. Later in the same chapter, but Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians to save them and bring them through the Red Sea. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. It started off well for them. They've escaped from Egypt, they've seen the Lord's power, and they confess, and it says here that they've believed in the Lord. Exodus 15, Moses and the people sang to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation, is what is on the lips of those people. Exodus 16, two different stories. The first one is bread from heaven, manna is sent down. The people grumble bitterly, it says that there is no food for them. Why did you bring us here? We could have died of starvation back in Egypt. Why have you brought us here to die, Moses? And then when God miraculously provides this bread from heaven that appears, and Moses gives them instructions, take only what you need for today, because God will provide more tomorrow, half of them take in more than they need, and then they're surprised when they've disobeyed God that it goes rotten and there are maggots in it the next morning. I think there might be an application for some of us there in terms of trusting God completely. But then, I mean, we kind of almost get the reverse of that. On the sixth day, they are told, Moses is given the instruction to pass on, taking a double portion because tomorrow is going to be the Sabbath, the day of rest. Trust God, taking twice as much a day. It won't go rotten. This is what you're meant to do. So the next morning, half the people go out on the seventh day to go and get more, and they're surprised that there's none there. They just do not believe God's word. But these are the people who have come through the Red Sea. They have seen the plagues happen. They have seen the firstborn of Egypt die. They have seen their firstborn son saved by the blood of the Lamb. They have walked through out of the country, out of slavery. They have been redeemed. They have come through the Red Sea. They have had... Miracles happen, and they sang to the Lord. They confessed with their mouths that he was God, but we see that they don't continue in that. They don't persevere. Second half of Exodus 16, um, we, fi- we find out that um, there's a, a, bit, um, a, a source of water, but it's bitter. There's bitter water that can't be drunk. So they grumble to Moses again. 
Moses uses the same rod that he used to split the sea with God's power, and he turns the water so it can be drunk. And we move on to Exodus 17. We move somewhere else, and there's no water. So what do the people do? Do they say, oh, we know you can fix this with God's power. We've just seen it happen. No, they grumble again that they're going to die of thirst. And God, at this stage, is starting to get a bit tired of it because the people, their actions are not matching up with what they've said. Do they really believe? David uses this to say to God's people in his time, inspired by the Holy Spirit, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts because that is what happened in the time of the rebellion. These wanderers in the desert turned away from God in a time of testing. And if the Hebrews turn away from God in their time of testing and persecution, then it is also disobedience. They need to persevere. We need to persevere. The author has started with the positive. He's reminded his audience of Christ and Christ's example, and Christ's faithfulness through his sufferings, but he cares too much for the people not to then give the negative example, where it didn't work out, where people did not persevere and see it through to the end. We've got these conditional phrases, these ifs, for a reason. Are we willing to be changed? Are we willing to let Egypt out of us, is what I had written down. Maybe the question, are we willing to let go of the hurt and give it to God? Maybe that's a better thing than what I've written today. What do you turn back to when times are hard? Is it works? Is it empty religion, surface religion? Or is it something that's genuinely at the level of your heart between you and God? If we can go on to the next slide, hopefully we get some of... Sorry, this is a bit small. This is trying to get um, most of chapter four on a screen. Again, I'm not going to read through every word that's here. in, In here, we've got a word. It's not translated fear. It's translated be careful. But actually, literally, it does mean fear. It's the word phobie, from which we get phobia, being scared of something. We are told to be fearful not just to be careful. We're told to stand before God with an appropriate sense of awe and reverence and to check out that our spiritual condition actually matches up what it's meant to. I want to remind you that he is talking to the church. He's using an Old Testament example, but this letter is written to the church in Hebrews, to those holy brothers and sisters. It applies to us today. We need to be honest about our spiritual condition. We need to be wary that maybe there are some whose outward actions and their words, they don't line up with the state of their hearts. Both the Israelites in the desert, the listeners in the time of this letter, and us, all of us have heard the gospel. Literally says the word gospel for what the Israelites in the desert had heard, the good news of redemption. We've heard a promise as well. We need to behave differently to uh, how they did. We've got a promise of rest, like they had a promise of rest, but there needs to be a difference. And that difference, going back to the word faith, is how much faith goes on with the listening. 
let's dig into what the word rest means because it talks here. So it's just requoting the end of Psalm 95. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. David uses that hundreds of years after the entrance to Canaan. David, inspired by God, uses that, which tells us that its use is not limited to the original historical thing. There is still a rest available today. God is still entering a rest. We are called today, literally today, to hear the voice of God, the word of God in the Bible, the example of Jesus One of the bits I haven't talked through that's been up there is encouraging each other daily what we say to each other about God. How do you encourage other people by talking about God? How are you encouraged by others in the congregation? That's part of it. We're told that's what's going to get us through. We're called today to hear his voice and not to harden our hearts. That means to have soft hearts, hearts that can be worked on and changed. Are you willing to give over all of your heart to God for him to do work on it and make it what he wants, even though it will be painful, even though discipline and perfecting us is a painful process? Going along with it is the fact that if we do, then we get to enter God's rest. Now, originally, that meant the promised land. And some people looking at this passage assume it means, well, in the end, you're going to get to heaven. It's talking all about the future. I mean, Hebrews is a book about pilgrimage and us going eventually to heaven. That is very much a theme of it. But that's not all that it means. It's talking about what happens today. God is resting today. He sat down and rested after the six days of creation, and in Genesis, the seventh day hasn't finished. Rest is current and active. This is an active promise for today. Jesus says, I've got a yoke. It's light. It's really light. You're going to love it, guys, but there is a yoke. The yoke's what's used to get people to do work. It's light, but there is work to do. Some people are falling short of God's rest and not benefiting from it. Just a reminder, this looks back at Genesis 2. Love how the author just says, it says somewhere in the Bible, doesn't say where. It's Genesis 2. Think about what Adam is called to do. Um, Stolen completely from Fillmore. I love this example. Adam's first job is to rest in a garden that he did not plant. It's to pick the fruit that he didn't cultivate, to enjoy the food that he did not grow. And in Deuteronomy, at the time of Moses, the people were called to the promised land and they're told, this is a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. There's wells there that you did not dig and olive groves that you did not plant. Please, please, please take the message that God wants to give us something for nothing. He is not expecting us to earn stuff with our work. Not in the slightest. We're told instead, in verse 9 here, that there is... Thank you, that's the one. At the end of this, right at the bottom, um, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. 
What is that Sabbath rest? Again, going back to the Old Testament really sheds light on how powerful this is. Leviticus 16 and 23 both talk about this. They talk about ceasing work and the Sabbath in the same passage. They join those two ideas up in the context of atonement. Because on that day, your day of Sabbath rest, atonement will be made for you. Someone else is going to do it. Atonement is going to be made for you on your day of Sabbath rest to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all of your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest. That day of atonement, incidentally, saw a high priest giving an offering, which we'll pick up later on in Hebrews. This Sabbath rest, this rest, is not just a physical rest. It's not just that we are tired and we need to actually physically rest, although a lot of the time that is true. Principally, it's a spiritual rest. It's being spiritually at home with God, forgiven, pure, blameless in his sight. It's accepting the blood of Jesus and knowing that he has done it all. We need to enter that rest. Notice, if we just go on to the last slide, that that's not contrasted. It's not superseded. It sits alongside. Both of these are true. A second fault, which is that actually... Therefore, we've got to do something. Let us therefore make every effort. We've got to be able to rest in Christ's perfect work and know that we cannot earn salvation. We just cannot do it. None of our works will work for that. And if you're trying to strive to earn your salvation, to feel good enough for God, then his word is telling you, you didn't plant the vines, but you get to eat them. You didn't build the city, it's there for you. God's gift to you the mountain that you couldn't climb because it was too high the chasm that was too wide for you to get across god has done the work and rest in him enjoy him spend time with god spend time with jesus but also then not to earn salvation but because of salvation because god wants to perfect us he wants us to live out lives in sacrifice to him, then work hard. Strive not to earn your salvation, but because you've got his rest. Work from a place of rest. Jesus' yoke is light. Doing God's work, in a sense, it is easy. Life is hard. Doing God's work is made easy. We need to accept Jesus' sacrifice and then... We combine listening with faith to actually actively trust and obey. We need to hear the voice of God, not harden our hearts, but have soft hearts and change in the way that God is prompting us to change. The moments of salvation, it's a great and it's a glorious thing. And this book encourages us to look back to it, to get comfort and encouragement But it does not say, stop there. Jesus did not say, go and make converts. And as soon as they said the sinner's prayer, your job is done. He said, go and make disciples. Go and build people up to be mature Christians who will persevere to the end and bring glory to God. Faith isn't just that one decision, as important as that decision is. 
And as much as these couple of chapters keep on talking about the security of God, you're holy, you're set apart, brothers and sisters. You have been set apart by God. You don't get any more secure than that. Okay? But we're told you've then got to go on, not to earn salvation. It's not just about that moment of salvation. God wants to do something to us. He wants to do something with us. Faith is an ongoing lifestyle. Romans 1 says the gospel of the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is from faith, from first to last. Again, stealing shamelessly from Fillmore, at every stage in the Christian life, fresh faith is required. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, your faith is growing more and more. The more you persevere, the more mature you get, you get more faith. It doesn't just stay static. We do something with it. And just finishing off what it says in the passage, we're told that actually we've got this word of God which is alive and active, acting today, looking at your heart today, right now. We can tell by someone's actions whether what they say is what they really believe. God doesn't need to wait for that. He knows the true attitude of your heart. It's at the heart level we need to respond. That's where he is looking. When all the coverings are stripped away and laid bare, the words here basically mean being stripped naked. It's not a pleasant thought. God knows what is going on. I mean, these verses are often quoted in an inspirational way. They should give us, again, that feeling of fear or reverence for God. He knows what's in our hearts. That's what this is saying. And he wants to perfect it. He wants us to enter his rest, rest in him, and be changed and be made perfect over time. So I'd like you just to reflect As I finish, God knows your heart. Are you honestly thinking about what it looks like? If you dig deep, if you look honestly at yourself, is it becoming more Christ-like as we're told it should be? Is it persevering and hanging on to the end, standing firm to show that actually your actions line up with your words? that you are one of the redeemed people of God? Are you open to God's fire, the consuming fire that can purify? Are you open to that? It's a big call, but that is what God is asking for. That's what he's looking for. I think the application of this letter is fairly straightforward. The author just says it. Fix your eyes on Christ and persevere to the end. God knows all. It might be that you realize that you haven't yet made that commitment to Christ, that you're not planning to persevere. In which case, I'd really urge you, today is the day to do that. It could be that, yeah, you know in your heart of hearts, you are going after Christ, but there are things in the way that you would like dealt with so you can do it better. You need God's rest. In which case, please, please come up for prayer. Accept his help because we do it all from him. It's not in our strength. You can't earn salvation. You can rest in him and be equipped to go and do good works. Just very specifically, we're told 
to focus on Christ? Are you spending time looking at his word every day? Are you spending time praying and listening to him every day? Are you worshipping him? Both in song and literally in your actions, giving him all the worth, showing that you value him every day. And as the other bit that we've got got, gone through says, are you spending time with God's people? Are you encouraging others? Are you being encouraged by them? This text, God's word, says daily. It doesn't say once a week. It says daily. There's a big challenge, but ultimately the challenge is accept it from God because he's done it all for you.